When I was young, I learned that love was all about romantic comedies, Valentine's Day, chocolate, and flowers. A lot of capitalist heterosexual BS. Now I know that real love is ferocious, it's terrifying, and it's a catalyst for change. I'm Ethan Lipsitz, and I created Love Extremist Radio as a platform to engage with people who are on the front lines of wrestling with and redefining love on their terms. They're activists, artists, and creators, all making change in their communities and the world. Thanks for being here. Together, let's define what it means to be a love extremist. Love is the truth. Love is the truth. Love is the truth. Love is the truth. In 2008, Matt Chandler was a spokesperson for Obama for America in Colorado and other states in the West. When Obama became president, Matt served in a number of senior roles at the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, including Deputy Chief of Staff and Acting Assistant Secretary for Public Affairs. As Deputy Chief of Staff, Matt managed issues and programs related to counterterrorism, intelligence, law enforcement, and immigration. I met Matt after he left DHS in 2015 when he gave a talk with Christian Piccolini, a former neo-Nazi, about how to combat and leave violent extremism. That conversation inspired me to become a love extremist. And I was recently reconnected through a mutual friend with Matt Chandler and have him here today on the podcast. What's up, Matt? Uh, it's it's my pleasure to be here, and it's great to be reconnected and obviously to learn about all the things that you've done uh, since many moons ago in uh, 2015. Yeah, well, and just to give some context, I, I'm at this talk, and a lot of the topic is really around Christian's story of leaving neo-Nazism, kind of discovering that his opening a record shop and his love for music, bringing people from all different walks of life and backgrounds into his shop and him recognizing that he couldn't not love people that were different from him. Um, but in, in your, what I remember from your talk was really about kind of how government was, indeed the Department of Homeland Security at the time under Obama, was looking to kind of target early stage um, extremists. And it was really under the context of um, what seemed to be, you know, Muslim extremists or, 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 or people who were kind of drawn towards ISIS and what the government was doing to keep people from joining the ranks in ISIS. Would you say that that, that was kind of what you were focused on? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, the, the context of the times is, is really important for, you know, for, for this conversation and also kind of understanding how threat has changed and morphed as it relates to extremism in this country over over the last five years. Um, uh, you know, I think violent extremism obviously is is a um, really important part of of what you know the the, the national security apparatus focuses on. Um, you know, you you kind of saw the more terrorist related threats really change, and then obviously this is um, the you know tomorrow's the 19th anniversary of 9/11. But even between you know 2001 and 2014, uh, you know the, the kind of traditional terrorist threat was was a you know, a, a threat from abroad, you know, some some type of network threat, i.e. usually non-U.S. citizens who, um, you know, adhered to a radical ideology in the, in the context of, of a lot of the work that, that we did and, and focused on at the department was, you know, um, 
extremism that was that was Al Qaeda inspired or or inspired kind of by the precursors of ISIS. And the way the change the threat really changed was from this what we call kind of operationally networked. So you know in, in a group of individuals who had received some type of centralized training who you know conspired together to you know to to carry out an attack to what kind of morphed into a much more socially networked threat. So it was much more diffuse. It was still some of these organizations, you know, or, uh, operating and, and based abroad, but recruiting individuals all over the world in the United States, in Europe, and in countries throughout the throughout the world, um, you know, to, to radicalize them uh, via the internet and, and provide them kind of simple instructions to, you know, to to carry out attacks individually, and that kind of became known as the homegrown violent extremist uh, model or the lone wolf. And that was something that was very concerning, you know, in, in my time at DHS and certainly around the time of 2015. In fact, there, you know, the FBI, frankly, had gotten so overwhelmed with, you know, um, threat information as it related to Al Qaeda inspired, or excuse me, ISIS inspired um, violent extremists that, you know, there was a, a, a really hard look kind of throughout the national security apparatus around those years to say, how can we best kind of leverage the community at whole to combat the issue of, of, of you know, of radical extremism or, or violent extremism to prevent, you know, to prevent attacks? Um, so it was a it, it was a it was a very um, dynamic environment in 2015. It's certainly a dynamic environment today as it relates to that specific threat stream, but also the way that the threat has changed since 2015 in terms of, you know, the things that we should probably be most concerned about as a government, as a, as a society is, is, um, is, is, you know, kind of breathtaking. Do you think that that is a perceived change or do you think it's a real change? I mean, like has, has the threat of internal violence from, as we're seeing, um, you know, gun toting Americans always been there. I mean, you think about the way that, our country was was established and the right to gun ownership and the mm -hmm. militias. I mean, it, it feels like it's something that's embedded in our history. Yeah. And I don't I don't think it's necessarily, you know, um, gun, you know, those who exercise their their um, constitutionally protected rights and their respect by any nation that there's certain, you know, in far-right ideologies and, and the organization of far-right groups, but also permissive environment that allows them to kind of operate in the open, you know, for so long. And I think Christian, you know, Christian's story about this is, is very interesting. And, and for those who are, um, you know, not familiar with him, definitely encourage folks to, to go and look him up, Christian Picciolini, who's um, written extensively about his experience um, in the neo-Nazi movement. Uh, operated a lot in the shadows and, and his story was interesting because it, you know, in many respects, he, the way that they communicated and recruited and radicalized was through music and it was through mm. neo-Nazi skinhead punk. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, it was a very much underground movement. You know, there was um, certainly, you know, heavy, ta heavy tattooing and, and stuff like that that made them you know, visible from a, from a kind of, you know, the, the way you saw them and perceived them perspective, but, but it was always kind of an, an underground thing. I think, you know, the, the, when Trump was elected, obviously there was lots of discussion about the, you know, the dog whistles to the far right and white supremacists and, and other, you know, far right groups. And 
it's beyond dog whistle. It's just a straight up whistle at this point. Right, <laughs> you know? right. The, the tweets about, you know, the, the suburbs being taken over by low income housing and, and you know, the, the suburban mom, you know, suburban mother profile being so central to his, you know, narrative about why he deserves to be reelected um, is, is so blatant and out in the open. And, and also, you know, the company he keeps, you know, folks like Steve Bannon, who have long had, you know, connections to, to the far right and, and Richard Spencer and Jack Sobek, et cetera, et cetera, um, who have occupied different spaces kind of within the Trump orbit. Um, so I, you know, I think it, I, I think the, the environment has become much more permissive for these groups to operate in the open and therefore, you know, um, that makes, frankly, recruiting and radicalization a hell of a lot easier than, you know, kind of being, um, you know, in the backwaters of the Internet, though, that certainly is, is you know, a, 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 a you know, fertile breeding ground for conversations on these topics. Right. Well, and it also seems as though, I mean, it's interesting, like the attribution of extremism as it relates to government putting the label of extremism on, say, Antifa. Whereas, you know, mm-hmm. I just was reading an article about the current DHS chief not talking about, you know, far right extremists as being, you know, an issue or a, a national security threat and kind of put, while maybe understanding that that was a reality, you know, and, and his, um, you know, people in, on his team, you know, articulating that um, him kind of downplaying the concern. And uh, there's also the kind of far right moving towards more moderate language. So the kind of dropping of um, dropping of maybe, you know, any type of white supremacist wording or language in, in their approach so as to be more accessible. And, you know, you, I don't know if you've listened to the podcast Rabbit Hole. Um, but it, it, it's interesting to learn about how kind of YouTube videos or other leaders through various social networks can legitimately talk about, you know, far right ideologies that can lead people towards more and more extremist beliefs and be completely, you know, above bar to a degree because of the language they're using. So I think that the interesting thing about, you know, the, the way that the threat environment, um, kind of, you know, has changed over the last, you know, call it 5, 10, 15 years. And to be very clear, and I should have probably made this more explicit in my previous answer, you know, the, the threat from far, um, you know, from from far right groups and far right ideologies has, has certainly always been there and was definitely there in my time at, at DHS as well. I think I think it gets to you know, the reason why it has increased has kind of, you know, gotten gets to the, the um, atmospherics around the permissive environment that I was talking about previously. Um, but, you know, I think the pace of change as it relates to technology is certainly a big piece of that. You know, we, we live in a far more um, uh, socially networked world, which cuts both ways. There's lots of good associated with that. There's lots of, you know, bad associated with that because the volume of, you know, expressions of all types of, you know, beliefs and ideologies and ideas um, is, is out there for, for people to engage with. And, you know, I think I think it's certainly a conversation in our society and culture right now, the role that, you know, technology companies play um, in that. And I think, you know, you, you see, uh, particularly in the last few weeks, um, changing policies as it relates to content, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Um, but, you know, and, and I would argue that is certainly a, a step in the right direction. Um, but I think, you know, one one way that we looked at it when I was at DHS was to to say, you know, the 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 objective here is to prevent violent extremism. The, the objection, the, the objective here is to prevent acts of mass violence. And frankly, it was, 
you know, in many respects, ideology agnostic. And I think this gets to your point uh, previously about, you know, the, the current administration and, and acting secretary Wolf, which is, you know, which according to the whistleblower, Brian Murphy, you know, has deprioritized, um, you know, the threat of far right extremism for in favor of, you know, perhaps um, elevating the threat of, of uh, more left aligned groups. But we really wanted, you know, we really tried to take a, you know, an, an ideology agnostic approach because, frankly, there was there was, when it came down to tactics, techniques, um, and and the way that these um, types of of incidents unfolded, were actually very very similar. So we really we focused on three things. One was research on behaviors and indicators, so studying attacks like Anders Breivik's mm-hmm. uh, mass shooting in Norway, um, the Westgate, you know, mall attack that Al Shabaab perpetrated in Kenya, Faisal Shahzad in Times Square, Abdul Talib, uh, the, the Christmas Day bomber, to try to kind of understand who were these individuals, what were their past radicalization, and importantly, where were the opportunities for an intervention that either you know we missed as a national security apparatus in this country or, you know, at, at any point in their life, really. Mm-hmm. The second was to really try to enhance partnerships with state and local law enforcement, um, with our international partners um, and, you know, with um, forested groups that, you know, had responsibility for interventions in, in many different ways. And then third was to really, you know, support a community policing model, because I think what we figured out, and I think this certainly remains true today, again, kind of regardless of the ideology driving, you know, the the extremist or, or, you know, the radicalization process, um, it it is more likely to be someone in the community than it is to be a FBI agent or Homeland Security investigations agent or, you know, someone at the federal level who who is going to intervene Mm. at, at, you know, at that last point, between you know someone being radicalized and actually perpetrating a you know a mass a, a mass casualty attack, so th- there's lots of, there's actually a lot of similarities when you when you start to unpack some of these profiles to figure out you know uh, whether it was someone who was inspired by Al Qaeda or you know ISIS or you know is inspired by the Adam Waffen division or the base or you know the three percenters et cetera et cetera you know. Um, uh, you know, where, where are the intervention points along the way to, to try to make a difference? Um, and, and that, you know, I think is, is critical to, you know, to, to trying to figure this out. And I think what's, you know, another interesting point between, you know, what was sort of the classic kind of jihadist model of, you know, of, uh, of radicalization and then training and preparing for that, you know, mass, mass, uh, incident of mass violence, you're starting to see that on the far right now, too. You know, so as you know, in 2018, there were reports of members of the Rise Above movement traveling to the Ukraine to train with the Azov Battalion, which is a paramilitary unit that's associated with neo-Nazis. And, and you know, and over time, begin to even fight on both sides of those uh, both sides of that conflict. And that, you know, that mere so they come home with that skill set and, wow. and are kind of e- even further um, able to carry out incidents of mass violence. It's very similar to the threat that we were very worried about with foreign fighters traveling to Syria. So American passport holders or European passport holders who can travel to the United States visa free, you know, traveling to Syria, partaking in that civil war, gaining hard skills that are very dangerous and then traveling back kind of under the radar, outside of the traditional radar, of how it would identify, you know, individuals who might be of concern who are headed towards the United States. So the similarities, you know, I think. I think we do ourselves a disservice when we, you know, when we say, you know, this type of problem is um, is 
you know, of course, threat information is going to dictate, you know, where the priority needs to be specifically. But if you take an all hazards approach and you kind of view these things, um, you know, not in tandem, but in 4D, mm-hmm. um, I think we're much better prepared from a security perspective, you know, um, moving forward. It's interesting, though, I, I wonder, and I want to kind of get dial out what we're getting into the nuance, which is great. I also want to kind of dial out and talk about some of these bigger themes. But I do sure. I do wonder if some of those applications around um, community policing would be applicable within police departments now, as we're seeing, um, you know, the exposure of actual gang type activities within police departments or sheriff's departments, especially here in Los Angeles. And, um, you know, the the question of, you know, extremist ideologies that might even be within structures and institutions of power um, and the radicalization of, yeah, our, our police or, you know, certain state sanctioned um, institutions. And so I, I, I wonder if that if that comes as a surprise or if, if that feels like, uh, you know, that, you know, that was always there. Well, I think there's there's two there's kind of two ways to look at it. I mean, I think there's the, the like the operational reality, which is that far right groups have kind of you know long sought to recruit members who have military or law enforcement training. Mm. Um, so there's there's kind of that tactical piece of it. But I think you know again, kind of zooming out, um, you know the. The police, you know, law enforcement in the United States has really changed over the years. And I think the prioritization of counterterrorism as a fundamental mission of, of law enforcement in many respects did a lot of good, but I think, you know, has kind of morphed and changed um, the American people's perception of what the police are. So are they the, you know, are they your neighborhood beat cop who is out of his car or her car walking around neighborhoods who truly knows, you know, the, the, the community? Or is it somebody in a mine resistant, you know, vehicle, <laughs> right. that, you know, was given secondhand from the military yeah. and they got for a song in a small rural sheriff's department. So, you know, I, I think the cons- you know, I think there's a lot of questions about, you know, how pervasive, you know, those far ideologies, um, you know, have, have driven into, you know, either law enforcement communities, the military community, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, you know, open question. Um, I would venture a guess, not very far, but the perception is equally disturbing. Um, mm-hmm. And I think, you know, um, you know, a lot of, you know, community policing has been around for a very long time. Um, it is an effective model. It is one that is, you know, championed by a lot of the big law enforcement organizations. And what does that actually mean? There's a lot of similarities between the community policing model that, you know, looks at, you know, police officers and, and, you know, those police departments as, as, you know, really part of the, their communities and not those communities and not separate. Right. But it also involves a lot of the, the other essential social services that, you know, that, um, that we see people calling for in the defund the police, you know, movement, which, mm-hmm. you know, I think, I think is interesting because there's a lot of synergies between those. You know, I don't think if you ask your average beat cop, whether or not they want to, you know, be the social worker, the mental health, you know, the mental health care worker, um, in addition to the law enforcement officer, the answer is probably no. But, you know, I think because of since, particularly since 9-11, the prioritization of funding towards, you know, police departments and, and that type of thing has been at the detriment of some of those other essential services. And, you know, just to kind of bring that into kind of sharp focus, you know, one, one thing that I don't know if you recall from, from the conversation in 2015, was, you know, I think there's a, there's, there was a, 
perception, particularly for young, you know, first, second, third generation Muslim American kids who might have been radicalized online and discovered, you know, either by, you know, a local cop, a teacher, et cetera, et cetera, kind of beginning to um, foment these, you know, radical or extremist uh, beliefs, but but to the left of boom, so, you know, so, so to speak, before any, you know, before they'd, you know, been um, sufficiently motivated to carry out a violent attack, you know, the, the idea, you know, I think the the proclivity was to say, well, let's arrest him, charge him with material support or some other type of, you know, conspiracy, and let the judicial system handle it. And the, and frankly, there was a a you know I think a smart movement away from that. Say no, pulling that, you know, arresting that kid, pulling him out of school, taking him away from any type of community support is the wrong idea. Mm. Um, what we need to be doing, you know, that kid actually needs more school, not less school needs a more solid connection to their community um, and, and, you know, the, the, the help of, of essential services that are not law enforcement or not law enforcement related. So, you know, we really couldn't arrest ourselves out of that pro out of this problem. And I think, you know, I think that has applicability today. I think there's still in, in, you know, I think the national conversation about the role of police is important because I think it is highlighting how, you know, how we lack, um, a lot of these kind of fulsome community support models that we really, really need. Right. Yeah. I think there's this question of, and I think this is a beautiful segue into kind of what, where love uh, plays a role. Right. And I raised mm -hmm. my hand to ask you this question uh, during that talk. And I asked, you know, what is the government doing to support love extremism? Because obviously, or alternatives to violent extremism. And, you know, I, I, I recognize now a lot of that question is rooted in, you know, what, um, you know, the movement on the streets are calling for, which is, yeah, defunding police and putting funds towards nurturance, towards care, towards education, towards housing, towards mental health, right, towards job training, the things that keep people engaged in a healthy life and not drawn towards hate, drawn towards violence. Um, and I guess uh, I'm, I'm curious to hear from you kind of how you define extremism today and or, or just in your life or if that's evolved, but what does extremism mean? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I have a pretty clinical view. You know, this is like former government guy. <laughs> totally. <laughs> you know, just, What's the clinical you know, view, it, doctor? The I think the clinical view, it, you know, at least it, it, with the background I have is, you know, is a kind of politically or ideologically driven adherence to the point that extreme action is taken. Um, you know, and I think there there's there was always like, you know, a saying around, it's like, God save us from the converted, right? <laughs> it wasn't, you know, it wasn't it, the, the, the people who tended to, um, to push, you know, really push the limits of extremism, generally speaking, came to the cause and were driven to the cause for a variety of factors, whether it was isolation, whether it was, you know, their background, whether it was, you know, um, how they grew up, um, you know, because they were, they were missing something in their lives and and you know ex, you know the, the ideology that drove into extremism filled that void um so you know i think that's like my clinical view of extremism i do think you know we tend as a country to make pretty um and and this is partially politically motivated but also you know i think it's i think it's kind of who we are as americans we we, we swing a little bit like pendulums right mm -hmm. <laughs> and yeah. whether it's on a four-year election cycle or if it's a 10-year cycle or if it's a generational cycle you know, we tend to prioritize, um, you know, we tend to prioritize different things. And I think certainly for, 
those of us, you know, who who grew up um, with 9/11 being a a you know a, a big part of our um, society and kind of cultural ethos, and and then our policymaking and foreign policy and, and how, you know how we how we view our, the world and how we view ourselves in the world, we are we see a lot of threats, um, and it's not and they they are they're real they're out there um, right. But but I think, you know, we haven't, you know, we need we need to not it is it has led us to a place where there is such, you know, almost I can think we can say violent polarization mm -hmm. that, you know, I think we need to take a hard look inside and say, OK, what do we, you know, as as people truly um, what do we want to prioritize? What is what is what do we want our legacy to be, you know, as as our country moves forward? And I think. What, what the work that you have been doing and, and ha having these conversations and, and putting the idea of love and in its many different forms and iterations at the center of the conversation is right. And I think whether you call it love, whether you call it nurturance, whether you call it, you know, community care, <laughs> yeah. whatever it might be. Dignity. Um, yeah. Is it a dignity? Yeah. It's, it's an imp incredibly important um, piece of, you know, piece of the pie. And, and unfortunately, I think it's been missing from the conversation for too long because, you know, I think we find ourselves at a, at a place and I think probably every generation feels like this where it's like, oh my God, can we actually, can we, can we heal and move forward? <laughs> Is there an right. opportunity to do that? <laughs> well, and can you, can you point towards budget allocation or government uh, initiatives that are actually in service to, a more loving model, a more, uh, you know, addressing these things at the root? I, I think there are, you know, nationally right now, um, short answer, not really. I think there are certainly communities around the, around the country who, you know, who do it right. Um, and, you know, there are communities around the country who probably have a lot of work to do. Mm -hmm. um, and, but I truly believe, you know, the, you know, this, and this is, <laughs> I'm not going to the right here. I promise, you know, I, I, I do, I don't know that there is, you know, you could create like a office in the federal government of like national unity and have it be effective. Right. I think this is, this has got to be a, a, you know, community by community driving, driving things at the local level mm -hmm. um, in order to kind of bring that dignity and civility back. Um, yeah. That's, that's my, that's my two cents there. That's really interesting. And it also makes me think about a couple previous uh, episodes. I, I interviewed two folks. Uh, one's Tim Phillips, who is from Beyond Conflict, uh, which is a Boston-based organization that was mm -hmm. involved in um, the um, negotiations to end apartheid and ending the Civil War in El Salvador and the conflict in the Balkans. And he's, he's just been, seen everything. And... Um, he just produced a polarization report in, um, that Ezra Klein actually just published something in Vox about that talks about how we actually have this perception of polarization that is greater than the reality. And yes. we're not as different as we think we are. We're not as polarized as we think we are. And there's so much overlap and common interest as humans. Just, and I think that's actually where the secret sauce is in this context of love or nurturance or dignity, where it's like, the, the the overlap is we're we have families right we we want to yeah. have jobs right we want to be healthy like there's these kind of basic needs that we all have we want to be educated we you know we want to live long help you know joyful lives and, and in order to do so um 
it's a prioritization on our part, but also like, you know, we must have assistance. There must be other institutions here that can step in and advocate for those values. And yeah. uh, I think it's really interesting to notice that and see where those overlaps are, where those bridges are. The other person I, I spoke to is Scott Shigioka, who's um, an amazing artist and, and, um, t and just scholar who drove across the country and, and is, he's a, a homosexual Hawaiian who lives in the Bay Area, a very liberal man um, who went to Trump rallies and went you know all across the country, lived in Appalachia for a while. And he's an environmental rights advocate. And he, you know, he, he noticed that language was so important. And, you know, as soon as you start to talk about climate change, you might lose people. But people in Appalachia are actually more connected to the earth and living from the land than many in cities. And yeah. so it's interesting to recognize there are these common belief systems, but sometimes the rhetoric gets in the way. One one hundred percent. I'm so glad you raised those examples because I think I think they are extremely right. And I think I think it's a couple a couple of reactions. Um, one, there, I think the the proclivity is to be like, oh my God, America is so messed up. Yeah. Um, but you know, my community is okay, right? <laughs> and whether that's and whether that's geographic or just the people you spend time with and people you care about and the institutions or places or businesses or whomever in your, you know, in your sphere that you love, like day-to-day -day life goes on and it feels pretty good. Right. So not here know, in that, LA, that, it's on fire. Yeah, <laughs> It's crazy. Minus, minus fires and, and, you know, locusts and all the other things that 2020 brings. But, but, but generally speaking, I feel like, you know, it's exactly what you're saying in practice, right? Because there are people you disagree with. There are people you vehemently can't comprehend why they believe X, Y, or Z. Mm -hmm. um, but in, in the doing, in, in, the, in the actual relationship itself, it works. You love them. You care about them, you know, whether it's a family member or friend, et cetera. So I, I think that validates the point on, on the polarization um, piece, just completely non-scientifically. Right. Secondly, you know, when you talk about kind of, values um well two things values you know who drives the values in our country i think that's that's an interesting change and then secondly how we communicate about it i think is a is another um is another interesting change and and you know i think we looked to leaders um you know whether elected in government or or you know of of big institutions um as you know traditionally as kind of you know the keepers, bearers, and 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 you know um, torch carriers of of whatever you know whatever the set of uh, mutually agreed upon American values were, and I think you know that is probably where the leadership void um, is is most pronounced right now. Um, you know I think our standing in the world has fallen. Um, we have we're, we're a we're global pariah in terms of coronavirus response. You know, right. We're absent from the world stage. So there's there's a vacuum in leadership. So who steps into the void? And I think that's a really interesting question. And I think you see, you know, you see you see it in a lot of different ways. We're not bound by a common religion, so you know, there's there's a, you know there's not kind of that voice. Um, you know, we have a very sort of fractured popular culture. Yeah. Um, you know, but but a a kind of you know if you could if you could say popular culture, I think is is in part. Um, responsible for having, you know, for um, uh, promoting a very, um, 
needed and necessary and important conversation around racial equality and just and social justice in this country. So I think that's good. But then you also see, you know, you also see kind of like, so who are the, who are the institutions in American life that are left? And you see big companies stepping into the void, which is really interesting, I think. Yeah, um, and, and trying and trying to communicate, you know, the values that drive them um, and consumers respond in kind, you know, so people want people work with work with and buy goods from companies that they believe share their values. So there are common sense of values out there. The, the real question for me is who are the messengers? And, and that gets to your question about rhetoric. And, you know, the, the messengers are, are oftentimes the most important, you know, the, the most important ones. Mm. Um, and, you know, I think I think it's I think it will be very interesting moving forward. Everyone has an opportunity to be a messenger, though, in, in within their sphere of influence. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, I think that's that's I think it's a it's a call to action in many respects for whomever is next as you know, as president, whoever the next Congress is, um, but also, you know, just people in their daily lives trying to prioritize um, you know, turn, turn, turn despair into some type of action and make a small impact where you can. Yeah. Well, and that's, that's definitely the impetus behind this conversation and why I'm here, you know, and, and really what you inspired in me was, well, what am I doing to, to spread extremist love? And what does that even look like? You know, and how how do we start to define that? And so, yeah, just, I, I can't, I, I can't agree enough on that point of recognizing our value and voice and, um, leading or, or just sharing that um, value system around love and, and around shifting the, the dialogue towards what we can celebrate and what we can honor and how we can uplift. That yeah. leads and, me... And, sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, I was going to say just one last point there. I mean, I think uh, this is where technology comes in as well. You, you know, if you are, um, you know, uh, rural, you know... <laughs> rural, whatever state guy, one, two, three, four, you can scream at the top of your lungs and curse people out on social media and be a real dick. Um, <laughs> sorry, pardon me. I don't know if this is a family friendly podcast. Good. Yeah. Whatever. Um, <laughs> but, you know, but would you say that to your neighbor? If, right. even, you know, if they were, if they lived a life that was drastically different than yours, you know, to the example of your, you know, your, the, the artist that you um, interviewed, the answer is probably no. <laughs> and, you know, I think that's, it's probably, you know, Captain Obvious here, but, but I think we've, we've deprioritized the, the real human connection and the real human conversations in favor of, and, you know, anonymized online conversations that have truly kind of done us a disservice, but a lot, you know, to back to the kind of initial line of questioning, is right fertile ground for, you know, for someone to say, you know, someone to kind of um, foment radical thought and that, therefore radical action to the negative. And, and you know, I think that the, the, to think what you're getting at here, you know, how, how do we how do we kind of, you know, take that and flip it on its head and, and steer it towards the positive? Yeah. And there's there's all sorts of uh, intricacies here because, you know, human psychology gets in the way and we think about our negativity Mm -hmm. bias and our, you know, our draw towards the drama or towards the fight. But absolutely, I think there's something, you know, if we actually check in with ourselves and recognize or, or have a mortality facing moment or whatever it is, we recognize actually, you know, we would prefer to have joy and comfort and celebration and not necessarily drama if it was our choice. And so, you know, we can start to act as if that's the case. Um, and I, I think it takes work because I think our natural inclination is to be drawn towards the fire and not necessarily the rainbow all the time. But um, mm-hmm. 
that that leads me to to kind of my next question, which is how do you define love? That's a hard question. Um, you know, I, I kind of view it um, as a prism in contrast of extremes um, because it, you know, it, it in many ways is it, the critical through thread that I think not only guides our person to person relationships, our relationships as a community, you know, our relationships with the things that are much bigger than us, but it also, you know, directs our decisions, our actions, and our views. Um, and I think it's like the thing that motivates your why, and it auto also motivates your how, but, you know, I think the manifestations of love can be so, you know, so different. Like, of course I love my family, you know, I love my friends, <laughs> I, you know, that, but, you know, when, you know, say a suicide bomber, for example, right. Or somebody who is, you know, who, um, perpetrates a mass, you know, a mass attack, you know, is patriotism love? Are they motivated, you know, are they motivated because, you know, they believe that their action is going to have an impact in furtherance of their people, their tribe, you know, their tribe, so to speak, you know, not, not in any kind of specific sense, but, you know, the, the, the group that they are involved in. Um, yeah. <laughs> but is that love? You know, I, I, I think in some perverted sense, perhaps, and it's to completely antithetical to how we would view an expression of love say, you know, if we are on the receiving end of that type of action. At the same time, you know, I served in Afghanistan with the Navy, um, you know, when, you know, when we eliminated, you know, a terrorist leader from, from, you know, the, the battle, battlefield, um, you know, is, is that an expression of love of country at the complete disservice of family and the, and the, and the follow-on effects of what that action is going to mean in terms of, you know, a community? Um, so, you know, I think, I think if I had to answer it in one sentence, I would say it's a, it's a contrast of extremes that is so, you know, woven into human nature and, and, you know, drives so much of our, our decision-making and action that, um, that, you know, it's, it's, uh, it, it takes on an almost prism-like, uh, quality. That's, I re I'm really glad you brought up those extremes and also your experience in Afghanistan. When you step away from Afghanistan and think back on that and having, taken out a leader do He's you not me personally uh, well, whatever <laughs> as, a, very as a group um do, do you do you feel like that was a loving act in retrospect um you know it, i i think it is a necessary act right um it, it, like it's it is and and here's why i think when you are in, and I, you know, never saw any direct action, never saw any combat, just to be very clear, you know, sure there was indirect fire and those types of things, which are scary. Um, and, you know, definitely make your heart uh, race, but, but nothing to, you know, to the extremes of, of, you know, what some of my fellow service members have, have uh, seen. Mm. But you know, I think the old adage is incredibly true of, you know, when, when you are there, it's not necessarily about, the over, you know, it's not about the strategic mission. It's not about, you know, the, the foreign policy, you know, the, you know, that is, that is the reason for you being there. It is very much about, you know, your team and the guys and the folks around you. Right. And, mm -hmm. and I think that is, I think that is true. So, so in some respects, yes, you know, that, you know, my team is going to be safe and we all get to come home then, then yes, I think it could be perceived as a loving act and perhaps, you know, bears more introspection on my 
on my part of whether of how I view it. Um, mm. But, you know, I think I think, you know, there's I think you have to be cognizant of the other side of the coin there. Um, and I think, you know, um, there's a, a, a former FBI agent who um, wrote a, a great, great book called The Black Banners. His name's Ali Soufan. He's a, a good he he recently was able the CIA let him put out a completely declassified version of his book, which kind of talks through, um, you know, his uh, his stance and kind of involvement in enhanced interrogation um, in that he refused mm-hmm. to do that and thought it was pseudoscience. He's a Lebanese American who um, speaks fluent Arabic and is an incredibly skilled interrogator um, and you know doesn't doesn't need to rely on any methods like that. And and frankly, has a, I think, a very good um, take that it probably coerces bad information. But he was recently, you know, talking about how, you know, I think the thing that we ignored as a country was how our actions served to further radicalize an entire, you know, potentially an entire generation um, of other communities against us. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the intent could have been, you know, and and we want to get in the deep, dark history of the beginning of the war on terrorism, but, you know, what you know what was kind of the even if the intent was good the outcomes were really bad and and you know i think again that is where the um complete sort of 360 contrast as it relates to love and what what love of country or love of community or you know love of the people next to you will make you do um and and the impacts that'll you know the far-reaching impacts that it can have this this is the first time that i'm recognizing the importance of the the magnifying glass and you know i always talk about it in terms of individual love and interpersonal love and collective love but there's also the kind of intentions and the effects And, Mm -hmm. you know, your intentions can be for your team, whether that be on the battlefield or on the sports field or wherever you are. Your intentions could be for your country, which is hugely macro, or it could be for your family or your, your partner or yourself. And I think it's really interesting to recognize that what is loving for yourself is not necessarily loving for someone else or what is loving for your team is not necessarily loving for the world. (laughs) Um, And that paradox is actually something that's really hard for us to reconcile. Like, do you think there is a universal love that can exist no matter what? Um, Or or is it always going to be at the expense of something? I think it, I think it, um, it, it almost matters at like, it's almost a volume question, right? Like at what level I think mm-hmm. it's here. Yes. I, I do. You know, I do think there is, there, there is a baseline humanity, which I think what I would, would equate with universal love in this context. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I think there, I think there, there are, there is something that, that makes us inherently human that allows us to connect, achieve, and have impact in, in ways that ultimately move us forward. I mean, that's the, the course, you know, the tide and course of human history. Mm. Um, but, the, but, re, but recognizing the paradox, I think, has to be a, in, you know, a very integral part of that. But I think it comes, you know, it, it comes from a commitment to understanding. Um, and I think that that, you know, if, if you look back at, you know, history of, of generations of, of human conflict, it, you know, whether what, what the intent was and what the outcomes were, there was a, a mismatch in understanding. 
And I like to think, you know, and, and again, you know, I, I only see these, see, I can only see these things through a soda straw these days, right? <laughs> because mm-hmm. I'm not, you know, necessarily involved in, in anything, you know, as big, uh, like a federal government anymore. But, you know, if I, if I look at it, you know, kind of in the soda, you know, through the soda straw of, you know, my community, you know, we share the values, we share the love of the same things and things being a capture for, you know, everything from, you know, interests, hobbies, um, places, et cetera, et cetera, that, you know, there, there is a through thread that makes it, um, that makes it work. And, you know, I like to think that, um, back to the kind of volume question that you could, you could do that at scale. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, and I think the, the, there's, I, I don't know what those unity moments are anymore. And it's a, it's a, it's a very tough thing to kind of consider if we, if, if a global pandemic is not a unity moment, I don't know what is. Right. <laughs> well, yeah. And, and even when we think about these holidays, I mean, I grew up without any question, you know, the 4th of July was this kind of celebratory moment or whatever it is, New Year's Eve or anything. And, you know, mm-hmm. and now I think we look back at the history of America and often, kind of consider all the implications and sure for some of us it has provided immense freedom and growth and opportunity and for others it's been a history riddled with slavery and abuse and yeah oppression and and um killing and violence and so it's it's kind of yeah like the the rose-colored glasses uh show up for everyone in different ways as you said the prism um and i I think that's a really appropriate point and also the understanding is really interesting because when we get into looking at kind of post-conflict resolution and alternative methods of resolution like transformative justice or restorative justice a lot of it is in the understanding and is in the kind of being able to face the victim to the perpetrator and, and be able to have that conversation and, and understand where the circ what, what led someone to do what they did. And sometimes that's almost more powerful than retribution or forgiveness is just the understanding. And that's been a definition that's come up on this podcast is people have said, you know, I think love is understanding and uh, yeah. it's really a, an interesting one and a, a, a crucial ingredient. C- couldn't agree more. And I, and I, you know, I, I, I from a privileged background and you know i i think it's been a for me personally engaging with conversations in conversations with you know people of color who have come from a completely different background than me um you know i think it has been incredibly important and you know i i i'm i'm glad that i've been able to serve in places like the military which you know which are is in essence a microcosm of the broader american culture more broadly. And I've, you know, I've worked with people from, you know, every, all, almost every different background you can, you can think of. Mm-hmm. And that has really shaped my, you know, my, my worldview. Um, but I have, you know, I think we all have so much, we do, I, you know, I, I don't think, I know there, there is just, there is so much more understanding that has to happen before we're, you know, even close to being on, you know, a, a level playing, a level field from on which we can move forward. And to your, your point about American history, you know, yeah, we, we are, we are taught things that, um, that are, you know, meant to make us feel proud and, and, you know, a, a part of the big, you know, messy experiment in American democracy. Um, but there, you know, there are at every turn, 
um, it, you know, there's been there, it, it, it has been at someone else's expense, right. whether it's a group, individuals, et cetera, et cetera. And I think, you know, history is history, but damn, we sure need to recognize it. Sure. So you're in Wyoming and I'm curious to hear how your experience kind of in, in that place and, and your choice to be there and, and how that relates to this conversation. I know you, you recently moved to a new place. Is that right? We did. Yeah. We moved a couple of weeks ago. And, and what is it about, you know, what brought you to Wyoming? Is, is it Kanye West or, you know, what's the... <laughs> well, the, the short answer is it was my wife's job, but um, I think that the longer answer um, is, you know, I, I grew up in a rural part of the country um, in Western Massachusetts, you know, I think in, in a small town, uh, I, both my wife and I are from small towns. Um, I think we really value um, that sense of community and connection to the community that's 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 kind of inherent in small town life. Uh, we also are just very lucky to live in one of the most beautiful places in the world. I, I love spending time outside. I ski a lot. I ride bikes a lot. You know, love spending time in the mountains. Um, so you know, there there was a big place aspect to it as well. Mm. Um, and so you know, my parents always kind of said, you, you know, if you can hit three things in life, if you can hit these three points in life. Um, you know, uh, do you have a job that you love? Are you with someone you love? And do you live in a place that you love? If you can get all three of those, um, you're, you've killed it. Yeah. You know, you've, you've absolutely nailed it. And I, I feel very lucky to, um, to be in that position, um, and incredibly privileged to, to, to be so, but, um, yeah, but yeah, we, we, um, we kind of consciously made the decision that this was something we wanted to do. Um, my wife got, was able to get a job here and, and I luckily am able to, to work remotely. So, um, when there's a good, when there's a good internet connection, but, <laughs> but the way I think this relates to, you know, this conversation and, and, you know, we are far from a perfect community. There's lots of progress that needs to be made, but, but there is a, there is a commonality of love of place here mm. that is, that is very much kind of a through thread. Um, it, it plays out in a lot of different ways. You know, I live in a town of, incredible stud athletes like your friend Colin O'Brady, who I discovered oh, a yes. hundred yards down the street from me. You're <laughs> kidding me. I love Colin. I'm not and kidding. He was on the podcast. <laughs> he was. Yeah. We talked about it. I saw him the other night. And, That's so uh, funny. You know, athletes, conservationists, um, you know, uh, people who are super involved in, in, you know, our, our community that, um, that is, di- you know, that, that is diverse in ways and, and underserved in ways. Um, so, you know, I think, I think, I think the, the plate, you know, if you talk about, you know, kind of your different buckets of love, kind of the, the, um, the love of places is, is an important, uh, important piece of, of where we physically live. Yeah. I also love that you, you talk about job relationship and, uh, location. And I think those have often been three kind of catalysts for my self-assessment of joy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, checking in on self-love, but also just, you know, where we're at in our lives, thinking about those factors and where we can maybe make a change or shift something so as to be more in alignment is always really interesting. And sometimes it's just checking in and saying, hey, this is great. You know, I feel really lucky where I am. And it's a conversation yeah. I have often with my partner. So I get it. Yeah. No, I, 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 we, we, I think we kind of look around and, and really are, are thankful um, not just for this, you know, the physical surroundings of, of this beautiful place, but you know h- how lucky and, and thankful we are for for having you know in- things that interest us as as careers and and have each other as partners. And, 
um, yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a lot to be happy about. <laughs> definitely. Definitely. So last hard hitting question I want to put. Sure. On um, what, what do you wish to see love extremists in the world take on? What, what do you think is um, something you'd like to just see evolve? And we talked a little bit about it in terms of kind of where attention is right now, but what mm-hmm. are your thoughts there? Um, a couple things. I think, you know, helping identify what that kind of base commonality is to drive actual conversations and progress forward is a, re- a really important part. You referenced, you know, um, Christian Piccolini's story a couple times during this podcast. And, and, and if we could create at scale kind of the, you know, the, um, the, the, what, what was a important part of kind of his de-radicalization process, which was, you know, I'm, I'm going to sell these, re- I'm going to open a record store. I'm going to sell these records, but, oh, geez, you know, turns out um, ne- neo-Nazi skinhead punk is not for everyone. So I'm going to carry some other music. Oh, wow. This other music, you know, brings additional people into these stores. Oh, wow. You know, what I, what I had thought about them isn't necessarily true. And that is changing my worldview. Um, if we could do that at scale, you know, I think I think that is a, a a more than worthy task in our incredibly divided you know divided society. Maybe not completely polarized society, as as you pointed out from the polarization report. Um, but you know, finding ways to have those conversations at scale, I think, is a um, is a is a you know a noble undertaking for the army of love extremists. <laughs> Amazing. I, I think that's great. And I have a lot of thoughts there. And I hope you and I can continue this conversation because I, I know, you know, you probably have some some thoughts, too. So, of course, um, anytime we can dig on it. Um, amazing. Well, where's the best place for us to find you, Matt? If folks want to follow up or check out your work, where, where can they go? Sure. Yeah, you, you can follow me on Twitter. I'm going to warn you, I'm not a big social media guy. Uh, I am at M.M. Chandler nine on Twitter. Um, uh, kind of relevant info about my professional life, et cetera, is in the bio. So feel free to follow along for lots of retweet and unoriginal content. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. I'll, I'll post that in the show notes. And to take us out, what's your favorite love song? All right. It's, it, you know, I think we, we just, we talked about kind of the contrast in love and, and, you know, maybe love and sadness being, um, you know, rhetorical kind of opposites, but I think they're all, they're all kind of woven into the same, uh, same tapestry, so to speak. Definitely. Um, so I'm going, I'm going helplessly hoping Crosby stills and Nash. Ooh, very nice. Great song. Helplessly hoping and also helpless by young who's not in there, but you know, yeah, <laughs> helplessly hoping. All right, great. We'll play that on the outro. Um, Matt Chandler, this has been a pleasure. Uh, I'm so glad we got to reconnect and I just want to thank you for inspiring this entire show and this movement and and just my curiosity around how love can be taken more seriously and integrated into our culture in more ways and uh really happy to be be connected with you and be continuing this conversation so thank you yeah likewise and and i i couldn't be prouder to have played you know even a you know a minuscule role in in your thought process and journey and um really get makes me um you know smile deeply i appreciate it awesome well, enjoy it out there in Wyoming. Send my love to Colin. And uh, do. we'll be in touch. All right, Ethan. Take care. You too. Bye-bye.
listening to love extremist radio if you like this podcast please leave a rating and review on itunes if you want to learn more about being a love extremist check out www.extremist.love and follow love extremist on instagram and facebook find me also on instagram at ethan lipsitz hope to hear from you soon peace Love is the truth. Love is the truth. Love is the truth.